Uh, well, friends, uh, you may have read the article in the Sydney Morning Herald this week. The headline read, The Sydney Mums Earning Botox Money with Sex Work. The Sydney Mums Earning Botox Money with Sex Work. Uh, it reported that a growing number of eastern suburbs mothers are signing up to work as sex workers. Uh, many were leading this secret life without their husband's knowledge in order to pay for extras like Botox, private school fees for their children, and designer clothes. Uh, one 46-year-old eastern suburbs mother of two explained her decision to engage in such work by saying that the growing number of websites offering transactional sex offered ways to meet men which were safer than Tinder. Uh, now, uh, I don't know how, how you react uh, to things like this. Uh, perhaps you are here and you're shocked uh, about this article. Uh, you might be surprised that it's happening so close to home uh, in the eastern suburbs of all places. But I just want us to stop for a moment and think about how our world thinks about sex and why a major national newspaper would report on things like this with such approval. Uh, why is this the case? Well, um, I'm sure the reasons are complicated and varied, but uh, I want to suggest that this kind of thinking about sex is the logical outworking of our secular materialistic culture. For you see, when you believe that there is no God or any spiritual reality to this world, then all you are left with is the physical world, our physical existence. Now, this physical world has no uh, inherent or intrinsic value or meaning, and so it doesn't really matter what we do with our physical bodies. So long as we're not hurting anyone else, people say, it doesn't matter how we use our bodies, particularly when it comes to sex. You know, you might have heard the phrase, well, it's just a physical thing. Uh, it's just sex. It's transactional. I will offer you my body for some designer clothes. However, as we saw last week in Genesis, Sex matters much more than what our world realizes. It matters because if you remember, the act of sex in the context of faithful, uh, lifelong marriage between a husband and wife is meant to symbolize the faithful and passionate and enduring love of Jesus for his church in the gospel. There is a sacredness, if you like, to the sexual act because it actually points to something much bigger and much more profound. And so it is not a cheap thing. It's a precious thing in God's eyes to be enjoyed uh, within the context of marriage. Uh, Genesis 2 describes uh, this earthly marriage relationship in terms of leaving and weaving and cleaving. Uh, in a marriage, a man publicly leaves his father and mother in order to begin a committed, lifelong relationship uh, with another person uh, to start a new family. In marriage, there is a weaving together, a holding fast between husband and wife as they commit to living faithfully with one another for the rest of their lives. And finally, in marriage, there is a cleaving 
as husband and wife engage in sexual intimacy, uh, which is sort of like God's glue that unites them together physically and emotionally and spiritually with their whole person. Now, that's why the cheapening of our sex in our world, ironically, has not led to more and better sex, but less sex and less satisfying sex. It's because sex is like that glue. It's like the glue that is, back at, that is at the back of uh, the post-it notes that you buy. It's meant to stick to one thing and stay there. The more you rip it off and try to stick it on other things, the less it will stick. It's the same with sex. God designed it to wonderfully unite two people and bond two people together for their whole lives in a profound way that goes deeper than merely the physical. And so the cheapening of sex with multiple partners will inevitably lead to less sticky satisfaction. In fact, study after study shows that it is actually married couples who enjoy, generally speaking, more and better sex than those who are not married. The statistics actually line up with what God's Word has been telling us all along. Now, friends, in our passage this morning from 1 Corinthians 6, it's obvious that sex matters a great deal to God. You can see it in the way the Apostle Paul speaks about the misuse of sex by speaking about sexual immorality. Uh, if you have a look at your uh, Bibles in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, you can see it there in verse 9 where he uses the phrase, uh, and again in verse 13, uh, and twice in verse 18. Uh, what is sexual immorality? Well, in the original language, it is the word porneia, which is where we get our English word pornography from. However, this is not simply talking about sexually explicit images, but rather anything that is done to sexually stimulate another person who is not uh, your husband or your wife. Anything that uh, we do to sexually stimulate another person who is not our husband or wife. Uh, it can be physical, like the physical act of adultery or homosexual intercourse, which uh, is mentioned in the passage. It can be a verbal thing, where we flirt with members of the opposite sex who, are not, who we're not married to in order to arouse them. It can be virtual by participating in pornography and the fantasizing and the masturbation that we know goes with that. Notice that Paul issues a serious warning here to the Corinthian church. Uh, he says in verses 9 to 10 that the sexually immoral will be among the ones who do not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's be clear, friends. What God says in the Bible is that sexual immorality can land you outside of his kingdom in hell. It's one of the many sins that can land us in hell. It's not as though just by being sexually pure, you'll be guaranteed heaven. You can be a virgin and be greedy, and Paul would issue the same warning. But it is saying that sexual immorality is a, is a serious, serious thing in God's sight. Can you see? Now, friends, just to be clear, 
Paul is not talking about here, he's not talking about here, uh, those who sin sexually, but who turn back to God with genuine repentance. Uh, He's not talking about the person who has stumbled sexually in the past by sleeping with someone they are not married to, um, or the one who continues to struggle with pornography, but who keeps on coming back to God, genuinely seeking forgiveness and desiring to change their lives in order to live God's way. He's not talking about those people here. Rather, he's talking about the one who is unrepentant in their sexual sins. He's talking about the one for whom sexual immorality is an ongoing and settled lifestyle, and they have decided not to change their behaviour. That's who he's talking about. And so, friends, I hope you can see that the Apostle Paul is not simply engaging in what we call moralism here. In other words, he's not just giving us a list of uh, a whole list of do's and don'ts when it comes to sex, and threatens God's judgment for anyone who stumbles sexually. And so, Christians can never simply wag the finger and condemn anyone who has fallen into sexual sin. For if we are honest, we are all sexual failures in one way or another. And uh, personally, I can't read this part of God's word without being painfully reminded of my sexual failings as well. But rather, Paul is writing to people who have put their trust in Jesus. And I want you to see that what he's wanting to do here is he's, he's wanting to engage their minds. He's wanting them to know something. He's wanting them to think about something that is vitally important that will help them uh, in this area of their life. Uh, You can see it in how often Paul uses the phrase, do you not know? Uh, You can see it there in verse 9, or do you not know? You can see it again in verse 15, do you not know? Again in verse 19, or do you not know? You see, what Paul wants to do is address the mind of these Corinthian Christians so that they will know in their hearts some deep truths. And what does he want them to know? Well, the good news that Paul wants them to know is that for people who have put their trust in Jesus, God has reclaimed even sexual failures for himself and for his purposes. Uh, He has has taken possession of them as his people. Uh, Some of you might know that I'm a bit of a guitar aficionado. Uh, I don't have great wads of spare cash lying around, and so I don't buy a lot of guitars. But uh, I like reading about them, and apparently the trendy thing to do in the guitar world these days is to build uh, high-quality guitars from what they call reclaimed wood. And so what they do is they find uh, wood from old buildings that they're about to tear down, but rather than throwing this wood away, what they do is they reclaim them, uh, you know, with all its blemishes and nail marks and so forth, and they shape them into top-quality guitars to be used by the best guitarists. That's sort of what is going on here. The Corinthian church were once headed for destruction because of their sinful rejection of God. 
uh, in verse 11, Paul says, and such were some of you, notice. Uh, He's not saying that some of them were sinful in the past, but some of them were not. He's, He's simply saying, you know, some of them were guilty of sexual sins, some of them were guilty of idolatry, some of them were guilty of uh, uh, other forms of immorality, but they were all deserving of hell and God's judgment. None of them were set to inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. What Paul says here is that there has now been an astonishing change, for God has reclaimed these people for himself through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's described in what I think is one of the most beautiful verses of all of Scripture, in verse 11, where Paul says, This is what some of you were like, but now you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's often the case that our sexual, uh, sexually immoral behaviour leaves us feeling uh, dirty, doesn't it? Uh, Whether we have been guilty of sexual immorality or whether we have had unspeakably immoral things done to us, most of us know what it's like to feel dirty because of the misuse of sex. Uh, Is that true for you? Uh, Listen to what one person, one Christian person, writes of his sexually immoral lifestyle in the past. He says, My spiritual life was so bad, I could never truly have communion with God the way he intended. It caused me to sleep around with as many women as I could. I often had unprotected sex because I would see it on television and think it was okay. It led me to impregnate one of my former girlfriends, and in the end we had an abortion and I feel absolutely wretched for it. See, I I feel wretched. I feel dirty, unclean. I feel ashamed. But more than what we feel, God says that sexually immoral behavior objectively makes us wretched and dirty and unclean before him. And yet, the wonderfully good news here is that Paul says, if you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he has washed you. He has cleansed you. He has taken away your shame through his death on the cross for you. Further, it's often the case that when we engage in sexually immoral behavior, we can often feel unwanted by God and therefore feel discouraged to serve him. I think it's true that Christians who struggle with things like pornography addiction or other sexual sins, uh, some some people might be consumed uh, by a lust for somebody who is not their spouse. Uh, Often uh, Christians who are struggling with these things find it hard to serve God faithfully in their lives. Sexual immorality actually prevents us from being productive for God. But notice that Paul says, if you belong to Jesus, then you have been sanctified. The word sanctified is just a big word that means 
to be set apart for a particular purpose. Uh, in my home, we have a tea set, which is set apart for special occasions. Uh, usually when people come around to our place, we serve tea in our usual teacups. Uh, we don't mind too much if these teacups get broken or chipped. Uh, if you've been around at our place, uh, you'll probably be served tea in one of these teacups. But once in a while, when there is a special occasion, I will take out the special tea set. It has been sanctified for this particular purpose, you see. Uh, that's what Paul is saying here. If you are someone who belongs to Jesus, you are set apart, not to live for yourself, but to live for God's purposes. That should show us that we are deeply wanted by God, and he wants us to live our life not for ourselves, not to satisfy our sexually immoral desires, but to bring glory and honour to him in the way that we use our bodies. And finally, it's often the case that when we engage in sexually immoral behaviour, we can often wonder whether um, God can ever forgive us for the things that we have done. Uh, perhaps you have stumbled for the thousandth time in watching pornography. Perhaps you have slept with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and because you know God's word, you feel terribly guilty about it. Perhaps you've had an affair with someone at work, and deep inside you wonder whether God can ever forgive you. Well, if that's you this morning, then I want you to see that Paul says that those who belong to Jesus have been justified, which means that God has declared you and me not guilty before him. Jesus has removed your guilt by paying the penalty that your guilt and my guilt deserved when he died on the cross for us. He has now clothed us with his own righteousness so that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sexual sin, but rather the righteousness of Jesus himself with which we are clothed. You have been justified. You have been declared right with God, says the Apostle Paul. You see, this is who you are now. You belong to God. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. Now, friends, I just want to keep on driving home this point because I know that when we uh, sin sexually in our, in our Christian lives, Satan works overtime. It can only be the case because if our sexuality is meant to point very clearly to how much God loves us in the gospel, as we've been seeing all along, then it makes sense, doesn't it? that Satan would want to distort and destroy a healthy functioning of our sex lives because he hates the gospel. How does this happen? Well, every time you and I fall in this area, Satan will attack us at the very core of our identity as Christians. He'll say things like, you call yourself a Christian after you've done that again? Or he'll say, you can't be a Christian person. 
You're just a sad person who watches porn. You're a pathetic person who cheats on your wife. How can you say that you belong to God? Does that sound familiar to you? And yet here's the astonishing news for all of us who are sexual failures in one way or another. If you are someone who has put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God says, I have reclaimed you as mine. I have washed you. You are wanted. You are forgiven. I have reclaimed you. You belong to me now. And so turn away from your past and live my way instead. That's the encouragement of God in the scriptures. And so, friends, uh, we've seen that sex matters to God, for the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. But in the next part of our passage this morning, we also see that uh, our bodies and the way that we use our bodies also matters to God greatly. Uh, Now, I don't know whether you noticed, but it seems in this passage that Paul is writing into a situation where some members of the Corinthian church were visiting prostitutes Uh, possibly from a fertility cult of some sort. How can it be that Christians were visiting prostitutes, you might ask? It's almost unthinkable, isn't it? Well, it seems from the passage that it had something to do with how uh, at least some members of the Corinthian church were understanding their physical bodies. Uh, You can see it there in verse 12 where Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Uh, It's important to see, uh, if you look very closely, that the bits in quotation marks uh, are the things that the Corinthian church was saying to Paul, uh, perhaps in a previous letter they had written to him. But the bits that are not in quotation marks are Paul's response to them. And it seems like the Corinthians were claiming that they could lawfully use their bodies any way they chose, uh, perhaps because with the coming of Jesus, they thought that the Old Testament law was no longer binding on them. And so it's lawful for me now to do anything I want. But even more than that, It seems that some in the Corinthian church viewed the human body as having no future. You can see it there in verse 13, where again, Paul quotes the Corinthians. Have a look at verse 13 with me. It says, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Um, I think uh, in your uh, Bibles, your English Bibles, only... Part of that sentence is in quotation marks. But I think the whole sentence is is meant to be in quotation marks as coming from the Corinthians. You see what they're saying? I think they are seeing the relationship between the body and sex as no different to the relationship between the stomach and food. It's just an appetite that we have. And it's no big deal anyway, because one day when Jesus returns, these things will cease to exist. God will destroy the body, along with sex and food and everything else. And so it doesn't really matter what I do with my physical body. Um, Perhaps the Corinthians mistakenly were thinking that in the end, their bodies would be destroyed, 
But if they are Christians, their souls would continue to live forever. And so because the body is going to be destroyed, well, it doesn't really matter what I do, do with it now. It's a classic way of thinking that says, let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, that's how many people think about life these days, isn't it? Uh, we're going to cease to exist, and therefore let's live it up now and do whatever it pleases us. But what does Paul say? Well, you can see there that he speaks about the reality of the resurrection. At the end of verse 13, he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God has raised the Lord, and, all, and will also raise you up by his power. In other words, the resurrection shows us that the physical body matters to God deeply. One day, just as he has raised Jesus Christ bodily from the grave, God will raise you up and give you a new body if you belong to him. It will be a perfect body. Some of us will have more hair in our new bodies. Others of us will be cured of our chronic illnesses. I'm looking forward to not having glasses anymore and seeing better. Yet for all the glorious differences in our new bodies, there will also be a continuity between our body now and our body then. And so the resurrection shows that your body and my body matters to God. He has a future for it. Your body will be for him. And so the way you use your body now ought also to be for him. It matters greatly to him. But secondly, I want you to see that what you do with your body matters to God because if you belong to Jesus, then God's very own spirit lives in you. God's very own spirit dwells in you. Uh, last week we saw that faithful, lifelong, heterosexual marriage points to an even greater reality, and that is the marriage between Christ and his people. And so you and I are ultimately created by God to be intimately united and married to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we are married now or single now, God has created us for that relationship. And it's the reality of this intimate union between Christ and his people that Paul speaks about in our passage. Uh, in verse 15, he says to the Corinthian church, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? In verse 17 he says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's all marriage language, isn't it? Finally, in verse 19 he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you? In other words, if you belong to Jesus, you have been profoundly and spiritually united with him so much so that his spirit now lives in each one of you. And so if you are united with Jesus, then how is it even thinkable that you would sexually unite yourself with a prostitute and become one with her or him? And further, if God has given faithful marriage, earthly marriage, 
as the way to display the faithful marriage of Jesus and the church in the gospel, then how is it even possible for a Christian to go from prostitute to prostitute or churn through sexual partners in unfaithfulness? How can that be a reflection of the reality that we are meant to reflect? It is a complete denial of God and the gospel, and it is an utterly serious thing in God's eyes. In verse 15, again, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. And so, knowing that sex matters and how we use our bodies matters to God, the command that God gives to us there is to flee, therefore, sexual immorality. Flee from it. You can see it there in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I've only ever had one time when I've had to flee for my life. Uh, it was at the Blue Mountains. I was uh, doing a hiking trail uh, over a few days with my friends. And uh, part of this trail took us uh, through some private property uh, that had animals on it. And uh, as we were passing through, uh, we saw this massive bull uh, with these sharp horns. Uh, I looked at the bull. The bull looked at me, and it decided it didn't like me very much, <laughs> and so it started to charge. And I tell you, I have never run faster in my whole life as I did that day, and I was only just able to escape from being gored to death by jumping the fence. That's sort of what God is saying to us here, isn't it? He's saying, you and I are to flee the danger of sexual immorality. We are to flee because sexual sins are not like other sins. Since sex is something that uniquely bonds two people physically, emotionally, and spiritually as a whole person, using sex in ways that are contrary to God's purpose is not only a denial of God, as we have seen, but also deeply damaging to you and to those around you. Friends, it puts to bed the kind of thinking that says, I'll just see how far I can go before committing sexual immorality, doesn't it? For example, if I have a boyfriend or girlfriend, I'll just see how far I can go sexually without actually having sexual intercourse. Or if I'm attracted to someone in the office who is not my spouse, I'll just see how far I can go in flirting without actually having an affair. That's not what God is saying here, is it? That's the attitude of a Pharisee. When the bull was charging at me, I didn't think, well, let's see how far I can let it get to me before I started running. No, I simply looked the other way and ran as fast as I could to get out of danger. 
Now, that's what God wants you and me to do when it comes to sexual immorality and sin in our life. Uh, what might this look like? Uh, I'm sure it looks very different for uh, all of us, but it might mean cancelling your internet connection or taking the television out of your bedroom if you are struggling with pornography addiction. It might mean not going on overseas trips only with your boyfriend or girlfriend because let's face it, unless you are terminally ill, if you are alone in a hotel room together, you are having sex with somebody who is not your husband or your wife. I have a Christian friend who changed jobs because he was very close to having an affair with another woman in his workplace and he wanted to save his marriage. Uh, it could mean confessing sexual sin to a trusted friend and asking for their help and encouragement for you in this area. Uh, I meet with a good Christian friend of mine once a month where we give each other permission to ask hard questions about whether we have been faithful to our wives for the past month. Uh, we met the other month and uh, surprisingly uh, we reminisce that we've been meeting together for 20 years asking ourselves similar questions each month. He's been a great blessing to me, and I think uh, meeting up with a friend, being open and honest with them, seeking their help and accountability uh, is a great way to go. But what about you? What, what do you need to do in order to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in your body? Well, you see, friends, Sex matters to God. Your body matters to God. God says, do not be deceived. If you continue to be sexually immoral and you've decided you're not going to do anything about it, then you will not inherit his kingdom. And yet, if you are someone who genuinely trusts Jesus, then the good news is that God himself says, you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified by his precious blood. God has reclaimed you and me for himself. And he says, you are now mine. And so flee from it. Flee from immorality and glorify him in the way that you use your body. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your good gift of sex. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who does not deny us joy and pleasure, but that you have given us good gifts like this for our enjoyment. But we also thank you that as the creator of sex, we can trust you with how to live as embodied and sexual people in this world in ways that are pleasing to you and good for us. Now, Father, we ask you for your forgiveness this morning for our sexual sins. Now, Father, we have all stumbled in one way or another in this area, whether other people know about it or not. Many of us continue to struggle to live in ways to please you in this area of our lives. And so please forgive us. But Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful news of the gospel. 
Thank you that in Jesus we have such a gracious Saviour. Thank you that in him we have been washed and we have been sanctified and we have been justified. I thank you that we now belong not to ourselves but to you. And so help us, Father, whenever we struggle with sexual temptation to know our true identity as those who belong to you and your kingdom. Help us and strengthen us so that we might flee from sexual immorality and the things that displease you and help us to glorify you as we live in our bodies. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.